Leviticus chapter 20. No treats this week, but there's still water, so you can help yourself. Leviticus 20, I'll read the chapter and then we'll continue a a basic biblical theology of the death penalty. You'll see why that is as we look at Leviticus chapter 20. And I'll just begin reading in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Again, you shall say to the children of Israel, whoever of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell in Israel, who gives any of his descendants to Molech, he shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I will set my face against that man and will cut him off from his, uh, from his people because he has given some of his descendants to Molech to defile my sanctuary and profane my holy name. And if the people of the land should in any way hide their eyes from the man when he gives some of his descendants to Molech and they do not kill him, then I will set my face against that man and against his family and I will cut him off from his people and all who prostitute themselves with him to commit harlotry with Molech. And the person who turns to mediums and familiar spirits to prostitute himself with them, I will set my face against that person and cut him off from his people. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God, and you shall keep my statutes and perform them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. For everyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood shall be upon him. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. The man who lies with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood shall be upon them. If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. If a man marries a woman and her mother, it is wickedness. They shall be burned with fire, both he and they, that, they may, uh, that there may be no wickedness among you. If a man mates with an animal, he shall surely be put to death, and you shall kill the animal. If a woman approaches any animal and mates with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes his sister, his father's daughter, or his mother's, uh, mother's daughter, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is a wicked thing. And they shall be cut off in the sight of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness. He shall bear his guilt. If a man lies with a woman during her sickness and uncovers her nakedness, he has exposed her flow, and she has uncovered the flow of her blood. Both of them shall be cut off from their people. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, nor of your father's sister, for that would uncover his near of kin. They shall bear their guilt. If a man lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They shall bear their sin, they shall die childless. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness, they shall be childless. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments and perform them, that the land where I am bringing you to dwell may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the statutes of the nation which I am casting out before you, for they commit all these things, and therefore I abhor them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. 
You shall therefore distinguish between clean animals and unclean, between unclean birds and clean. And you shall not make yourselves abominable by beast or by bird, or by any kind of living thing that creeps on the ground, which I have separated from you as unclean. And you shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. A woman, or a man or a woman who is a medium or who has familiar spirits shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. Amen. So the book of Leviticus essentially deals with public worship or matters concerning worship in chapters 1 to 16. And then from 17 to the end of the book, we have a holiness code on how the individual Israelite was to be distinct from the nations around them. That obviously meant obedience to God's moral law. It also meant obedience to God's ceremonial law. So the prohibition against unclean animals. It wasn't so much so, so the case for safety because certain foods were, were harmful for health, but it distinguished them from the heathen around them. Even their diet, their clothing, everything was to separate them as a people unto God. And so that's the emphasis in Leviticus 17 to the end of the book. So we've already seen many of these laws that are indicated here in chapter 20 rehearsed in chapters 18 and 19. So last time we just did a brief overview of chapter 20 and then uh, started a biblical theology of capital punishment or the death penalty. So back to chapter 20 for just a moment after a brief introduction in uh, verses 1 to 2a, just a reminder that it's God who commands this. This isn't the civil government. This was wasn't a social contract. This wasn't Moses unaided by the divine spirit just coming with some thoughts in his head to share with the body politic. This comes from on high. God gave this law. And then he indicates first table offenses in verses 2b to 6. The first table is our duty to God, commandments 1 to 4. The second table is our duty to man, commandments 5 to 10. So under the first table offenses, you see the worship of Molech and the practice of witchcraft. There then follows an exhortation in verses 7 and 8, and then second table offenses, <clears throat> excuse me, in verses 9 to 21. You have the cursing of parents in verse 9, the act of adultery in verse 10, the act of incest in verses 11 to 12, 14, 17, 19 to 21. And that was the bulk of Leviticus chapter 18 as well. You've got homosexuality condemned in verse 13, bestiality in verses 15 and 16, and then inter intercourse during menstruation in verse 18. Now we need to remember that these are actual acts. These are not thought crimes. These are not a wandering mind concerning these things. When it comes specifically to consider the death penalty, the death penalty has never been given to the government to police the thoughts of men. You're free to have vicious, vile thoughts in the body politic. Now, those vicious and vile thoughts are sin, and God will ultimately punish your sin. Make no mistake about that. But in terms of the civil government, the one who's been given the sword by God to carry out criminal uh, execution of criminal offenders, it is acts, it is deeds, it is conduct that is condemned. So if there was an Israelite that had those thoughts while he was in his living room, there was no you know, band of secret police that would come in and take him out and stone him to death. We need to make sure that we understand that. We do not want to give the sword to those who would wield it against us for thinking wrong thought. That's a bad, bad thing. And I think the scriptures indicate that throughout. 
And then there's another exhortation in verses 22 to 26. And again, the emphasis is on do not be like the heathen around you. Be separate, be holy, even as the Lord your God is holy. And then it ends with another uh, emphasis on witchcraft. No doubt, because the children of Israel are going into the land of Canaan and there's going to be witchcraft. There's going to be soothsayers. There's going to be necromancers. There's going to be all kinds of idol, uh, 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 idols. They're going to have to guard their hearts when it comes to worship and to seeking divine aid. So then we in, uh, introduced the concept of the death penalty. And we looked first at Genesis 9. We'll review that in just a moment. But just by way of reminder, there are three instances in the Bible that authorizes killing. Three instances of lawful homicide in the Bible. The first is self-defense. You can turn to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 22. You may not, you have to, but you may kill somebody in the defense of yourself. You use that force that is necessary to make sure that you protect yourself and those who are near to you. So self-defense, death is not murder. Self-defense is lawful homicide. So notice in Exodus 22, specifically at verses 2 and 3. If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. The thief breaks into your house and you come down the stairs and you've got a big, you know, shoehorn. I happen to have a big metal one that if I had to wield it, I'm sure I could cave in somebody's head. It serves a twofold purpose, helps me with my shoe. It's also blunt force trauma. So if I swing that at the man and it's a, the hours of darkness and I kill him, I am not criminally liable for that. Now notice the qualification in verse 3. If the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He should make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. The idea being that in the hours of daylight, I'm better able to assess the intruder's intent. If he's not there to kill me, to rape my family, to kill them, I don't have the right to kill him in that exchange. I can rebuff him. I can stop him. I can cry out to my neighbors who are probably awake and alert because it's the hours of daylight. But the, the thief then still must make full restitution. The idea being is that the death penalty is not authorized for theft. So if it is the case that I'm defending myself in the hours of darkness, I don't know what his intent is. I simply wield that blunt force, uh, uh, I give him blunt force trauma and he dies. There's no guilt for me. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. One other passage that we need to look at in terms of self-defense. Notice in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 12. This is not teaching the doctrine of self-defense. Let me just make that clear. Jesus is using an illustration, however, that has as its tap roots the doctrine of self-defense that we find in Exodus 22 and elsewhere in the Bible. But notice in Luke, Luke, Luke 12, specifically at verse 37, 
Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. It's the doctrine of self-defense, the do doctrine of defending one's property. Our lives are attached to the property that we own. Therefore, when somebody intrudes upon that, we have the right to rebuff them. We have the right to send them packing. We have the right, according to Exodus 22, to wield an object to kill him if it is in the hours of darkness. And then, of course, Jesus tells his disciples to take swords on their journeys. Now, the idea that those were the spiritual swords of the word of truth doesn't make any sense whatsoever. They took physical swords to defend themselves from marauders. They didn't take physical swords to advance the kingdom of Jesus because Jesus isn't a Muslim. They took physical swords, however, to defend themselves in the event that somebody wanted to do them harm. So the idea that we can defend ourselves is in fact biblical and we are able to use that force necessary to make sure that we are vindicated and that we don't lose in that exchange. The second instance of, of, of lawful homicide or killing is uh, uh, just and necessary war. You can turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. It occurred to me in preparation for tonight that probably there's a series of messages needing to be done on the doctrine of war. I'm just going to give you a, a, a Hodge quote in just a moment that I think summarizes it well. But in Deuteronomy chapter 7, specifically in verses 1 to 5, you have the mandate to engage in holy war. So God tells the children of Israel, verse 1, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. Now this is a just and necessary war. When God commands the children of Israel to go in and take that land, he commands them to engage in holy war. And then when you trace through the Old Testament, you have to be a fool to not see war there. You have to be a fool to not see that God, and I'm not saying this in a wicked way, is at least to some degree, degree pro-war. When his people are attacked, he expects them to defend themselves. When his people are attacked, he expects them to launch counteroffensive. When his people are attacked, he, he expects them to, to defend their property and to go against those uh, uh, foreign invaders. And then the, the sword given to the civil magistrate, we're going to see that in a bit, in a bit, uh, a bit later, in Romans 13, it's for the execution of the death penalty upon criminal offenders within the body politic, but it's also to protect from foreign invaders. It's to protect the body politic from people that would come in and do us harm and, and hurt us. I've said it before, the problem with the government isn't that they kill people, it's that they kill the wrong people. They kill babies, they kill the elderly, they're going to start killing drug addicts, they're killing the mentally ill. It won't be long before they kill people like you and I, who are pro-life and actually confess saving faith in Jesus Christ. Who should they be killing? murderers, rapists, 
pedophiles, and anybody that would uh, uh, come over our border with the intention to do us harm. That's the proper, and I would argue, about the only function that the government has. It is to protect the civil polity, not to legislate every act of our lives, not to rule over us from cradle to grave, not to create some dependence upon them by everything that they do. No, their, their task is very simple. I've got it later in my notes. I'll, I'll just read it right now. Listen to Jay Gressa Machen. The state exists for the repression of evildoers and the protection of individual liberty. Wow, you mean not give us school, not give us abortion, not give us euthanasia, not give us a, a universal basic income, not price control our grocery store? You, you mean that's it? Yeah, that's it. The state exists for the repression of evildoers and the protection of individual liberty. That's it, brethren. When you search the scriptures, you don't come up with a laundry list of everything that, that should be done. I just read today that there's this promise of a billion dollars for some new industry to build batteries, I think, here in B.C. Where's this billion dollars coming from? It's coming out of our pockets, brethren. I don't agree to that. I, didn't, I wouldn't say yes to that. Machen goes on to say the civil government, quote, is not intended to produce blessedness or happiness. I agree with that. I don't want Justin watching my back. Whenever he does, it costs me more money and hurts me. The government is not intended to produce blessedness or happiness. That's not their job. We want to make your life wonderful. We want to make sure you have everything. No, just leave us alone. That should be the Christian mindset. He goes on to say, but they are intended to prevent blessedness or happiness from being interfered with by wicked men. So don't make me blessed or happy. Just protect me insofar as I can pursue my own blessedness and happiness without wicked men trying to kill me, without wicked men trying to steal from me. That's their function, brethren. That's about it. So the next time you vote, don't vote based on, well, what are these guys going to give me? There ain't no such thing as a free lunch. So self-defense, just and necessary war, and under that head, I mentioned a Hodge quote. Because the question, I think, is in the, in the statement, what's a just and necessary war? I mean, come on, we got three of them going on right now that we know of. We got Myanmar, we've got the Middle East, and we've got uh, the Ukraine. Now, again, this isn't going to answer everything, but I think it puts you in the arena of reformed ethics in terms of things to think about when it comes to just and necessary war. Hodge says, no plea of honor, glory or aggrandizement, policy or profit can excuse, much less justify, war. Imagine that. You mean you don't go to war for profit? Well, probably we'd see the end of a lot of wars if, if that was you know, upheld. He goes on to say, nothing short of necessity to the end of the preservation of national existence. In order to make a war right in God's sight, it is not only necessary that our enemy should aim to do us a wrong, but also, one, that the wrong he attempts should directly or remotely threaten the national life, and two, that war be the only means to avert it. 
Again, we need to think about these things as people who subscribe to Holy Scripture. We love the Bible. We love the Word of God. But there's a lot of fuzzy thinking out there when it comes to self-defense, just and necessary war, and certainly when it comes to the death penalty. I remember a pastor in my office, this is many years ago, and I asked him, do you ever preach on the death penalty? Well, you know, it's kind of a... No, I asked him, do you ever preach on abortion? Well, you know, that's kind of a controversial subject. It, you know, it kind of bothers people. And I said, what about the death penalty? Well, you know, I know the Old Testament had it, but Jesus told us to turn the other cheek. And I'm thinking, you're a pastor, and you don't know what the Bible says about the death penalty? You should go back to Sunday school. You should learn your ABCs before you stand in a pulpit and tell people what God's Word doesn't say. Or tell people uh, something that God's Word you know, doesn't mean. So when it comes to the Bible and the death penalty, turn back to Genesis 9. Just a quick reminder, a quick refresher on what we've seen thus far. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, that's the Old Testament. Well, you might be able to make that argument about the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Covenant, but you can't make that about the Noahic Covenant. This is the covenant God made with Noah. And prior to the flood, the earth was exceedingly corrupt. It was filled with violence. So, got, of course, God sanitizes the earth. He floods the earth. He spares Noah and his family. And then he makes this covenant with Noah. And it's not a redemptive covenant. It's called a covenant, uh, it's called a common grace covenant. In other words, it, it provides for stability in the created order such that the preaching of special grace, redemptive grace, can happen. God promises never again to destroy the earth. God promises to, to, to you know, keep things going in terms of seed time and harvest and all that sort of thing. The Noahic covenant is universal in scope. It's not been abrogated. It's not been rescinded. It's not been done away with. It's still practiced or it's still in practice for today. So, of course, one of the problems that obtained prior to the flood was violence in the earth. What's one of the means that God gives to redress that problem in Genesis 9? Well, notice in verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. So basically, in the context, you've got the propagation of life, verses 1 and 7, the provision for life in verses 2b and 3, and then the protection of life, both from animal and from human animal. So whoever sheds man's blood, that's the offense. Now, subsequent revelation will make it clear that this is murder. Whoever sheds man's blood with malice aforethought, with premeditation, with wickedness in his heart, Remember, the Mosaic legislation further identifies or distinguishes between a, homicide or a manslaughter and murder. Manslaughter almost sounds rougher to me than does murder, but manslaughter is when it's accidental. You don't mean to actually slaughter that man. You're swinging your axe, and the axe head flies off, and it finds its way into your neighbor's head. You didn't mean that. There was no malice aforethought. There was no premeditation. There was no hatred in your heart. So that's, that's manslaughter. That's not murder. Murder is when you hide in your neighbor's bush because he did bad things to you and you jump out with an axe and you bury it in his head. So whoever sheds man's blood, the crime of murder, notice the, the, the redress, notice the penalty. By man his blood shall be shed. Notice the agent there, it's man. Man wields the sword against his fellow man if his fellow man is guilty of, in this instance, the crime of murder. And then the theological rationale is given, for in the image of God he made man. 
Why do, we, why do we execute somebody that commits murder? Because he has assaulted the image of God, because he is a wretch. But as well, why does man serve or function as the agent to wield that sword to execute the criminal offender? Because he's an image bearer of God, and God instituted civil government. In fact, Luther said this was the first command having reference to the temporal sword. By these words, temporal government was established and the sword placed in its hand by God. So Genesis 9-6 grounds the idea of capital punishment, specifically for the crime of murder, in the reality that man is an image bearer of God. When you move through the Old Covenant, you get to the, the Old Covenant specifically, you've got, as I said, the distinction between accidental homicide and murder. You can see that in Exodus 21, 12 to 14, Numbers 35, 9 to 34, Deuteronomy 19, 1 to 13. And then the identification of additional capital crimes many of which are in our passage here in Leviticus chapter 20. So you've got murder for sure, you've got adultery and sexual immorality, bestiality, homosexuality, rape, incest, incorrigible son, Sabbath breaking, kidnapping, solicitation to apostasy, witchcraft, sorcery, and false pretension to prophecy and blasphemy. And then one final note, you can turn to Numbers 35. Numbers 35, specifically with reference to the crime of murder, the death penalty is the only redress. The death penalty is the only response. The death penalty is the only authorized sanction by the living God. Notice in Numbers 35, specifically in verse 30, uh, 33. So you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. That's it. No ransom payment is paid. No, you know, plea bargain. No 12 years with good behavior. The criminal that, that murders another human being is supposed to be executed by the civil state. That, that is a given. That is a non-negotiable. So when we look at a land like ours that suspended the death penalty, I think it was back in 1967, Think of the blood guiltiness of a land like Canada. Think of the blood guiltiness of a land like America. Think about the various communist nations and the blood guiltiness there. It is an absolutely wretched and horrific situation. Now having said all that, perhaps it is in the wisdom of God right now that Justin doesn't wield the sword, that the Liberal Party doesn't wield the sword because they might just come after us. So that might be a blessing in disguise. Now when we turn to the pages of the New Testament, you can turn to Acts 25. Acts 25, in terms of the, the, the New Testament doctrine of, of, of the death penalty. While you're turning there, I would just remind you of the life and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. When the Jews were crying, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Now this is an argument by, uh, by, of silence, but Jesus didn't boycott the death penalty. Jesus didn't say, you Jews don't know what you're doing. Pilate, you're wrong. You shouldn't be executing people. No, Jesus knew this, Jesus understood this, and Jesus went through this for us men and for our salvation. It was a practiced situation in his day and age. But notice Paul in chapter 25 of the book of Acts as he stands before Festus. He appeals to Caesar, because as a Roman citizen, he had that right. Paul's an interesting case study in citizenship. There are times where he invokes his citizenship if it means advancement for the gospel. 
In other words, when he's about to be arrested and beaten without any charges, he says, are you beating a Roman citizen? The fellow's like, well, I didn't know you were Romans. Yeah, I am a Roman citizen. You're, you're not supposed to do that. When Paul gets wind in chapter 23 from his nephew that there's a conspiracy to commit murder against him, he goes to the civil authority and he asks for protection and he gets that protection because he's a Roman citizen. So again, he's not doing it to save his own bacon. He's not doing it just to extend his life so he can golf more. He's doing it in terms of gospel advance. So now he's, sit, he's before Festus. He's making this appeal to Caesar. And, and let's just back up a little bit. Look at verse 7. When he had come, the Jews who uh, had come down from Jer Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove while he answered for himself. Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. Notice the bases covered there. It's not just Jewish law. It's not just temple law, it's, but it's Roman law as well. Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. In other words, it's not just a religious thing, but it's also a civil thing. I'm not guilty of any violation of these things. Now notice in verse 9, But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you very well know. Now look at what he says in verse 11. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, seems to expand on just the crime of murder, because that always comes up in death penalty discussion. Well, do you think the death penalty for crimes beyond just murder? Yeah, I do, for sure. That's another argument, but Paul seems to as well. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. So under Jewish law, under Roman law, as a Roman citizen, as a Jewish rabbi, the apostle Paul says, I do not oppose. I am not opposed to, to being executed if I'm guilty. Brethren, that's a strong argument in favor of the, the abidingness of the death penalty. But then we have Romans 13. You can turn there. Romans chapter 13. Probably the clearest passage at least from our New Covenant vantage point, concerning the death penalty. Now, look at how 13.1 begins. Notice there's no what's called adversative there. So there's no but, or there's no on the other hand. There's no sort of thing that would disconnect it from chapter 12. In other words, the, the versification came later. If, if you didn't have, you know, a big 13 right before, you know, Romans 13, 1, and you didn't have, you know, that kind of guidance, you might just be inclined to read Romans 12 and 13. You'd be better served in your understanding of Romans 13 if you got what was going on in Romans 12. In fact, you can go back there for just a moment. So chapter 13 continues Paul's argument in 12, 17 to 19, and it specifically qualifies verse 19. So notice in chapter 12, verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. 
If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written. Now, in something that's not altogether disconnected, look at that. Be loved, do not avenge yourselves. That's the emphasis, okay? When I was a kid growing up, there was a Charles Bronson movie called Death Wish, and he played a, a vigilante, and he went out with big guns and shot everybody on the city streets. And there was a certain sense where you rooted for that because these weren't people that were upstanding citizens. They got what was coming to them. But you're not supposed to engage in vigilanteism. That's not an authorized thing from God. And that's the point. Do not avenge yourselves. But, but note these next few words. But rather give place to wrath? What do you think he means? Well, he means that there is a sense where you should be outraged and you should be incensed with the savagery and the wickedness and the brutality of men in this world. And when he says, give place to wrath, he makes way for the one who inflicts wrath, namely God. But before we look at that, consider the imprecatory Psalms. Isn't that a way to give place to wrath? When we sing God's judgment upon God's enemies, isn't that a vehicle by which we can actually obey Paul there, but rather give place to wrath? Do we ever do that? I'm not saying you don't get mad and have a temper, temper tantrum because somebody upset. I'm talking about the righteous anger that is consistent with a, uh, an honoring of the Lord Jesus Christ and the, the law of God and to see his, his, his word rejected and despised. There ought to be that in us to, to cry out with the psalmist, to, to sing with the psalmist, that God would bring vindication to his church, that he would bring justice and judgment upon the heads of his enemies. So give place. He's not saying wrath is bad. That's the point I think I'm trying to make here. He says it's bad for you to avenge yourselves. It's bad for you to go get a big gun and walk down you know, Main Street in Chilliwack like you're, you, you know, you're the, the king of the, 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 the roost there and shooting people. That's what's wrong. So, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You've got to think about this passage in light of Matthew 5. I'll make the connection later. But when Jesus is talking about turning the other cheek, he's not calling down the civil magistrate from executing a rapist. He is telling you how to live your daily life. He's telling you not to be a Pharisee that is, you know, judgmental and hypocritical and always out to exact a pound of flesh over every little thing. The Sermon on the Mount parallel is right here. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy talk, you know, if the, the Roman soldier asks you to walk a mile, then, then go with him two miles. If somebody slaps you on the face, then let him slap the other side of your face. It's a slap. It's, it's an indignity. It's not a, 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 an assault. It's not a, an attempted murder. It's a slap. It's, a, it's an embarrassment. So that's what corresponds. So context here is don't avenge yourselves, but give place to wrath. Now, is there a mechanism in history where God executes his wrath? Because we read Romans 12, we say give place to wrath. Okay, God, come and get your enemies and let them have it. 
And we typically think or suspend that to the great day of judgment. Well, the day of judgment, and, and we can suspend every you know, wrong that's ever been done and hasn't been requited. Everything's going to be paid back on that day of judgment, but not all things. So, so, so when it comes to you know, this idea of God avenging himself, is it just the day of judgment? Is that all that the Christian believer has to look forward to? No. God instituted the civil government as the one who executes his wrath in history. Look at what Paul says, verse 1 of chapter 13. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror, notice the language, to good works, but to evil. And I think works needs to be supplied there, at least mentally. Remember? The civil government is not out to punish your sin. The civil government is not out there to punish your lustful thoughts. The civil government is out there to punish your rape, to punish your child molestation, to punish whatever crime you engage in. So rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil works. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Now notice verse 4. For he is God's minister. We see that word used in, a, in ecclesiastical contexts. We use it for the diaconate. It's, I think, used to Paul as a, a minister. It's the, the ecclesiastical deacon. But in the context of the civil government, he's God's minister to you for good. Now notice the rest of verse 4. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger. Notice the next few words. To execute wrath on him who practices evil. Hmm. We were just told, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to what? Wrath. So the means is God's day of judgment when he destroys all of his enemies. But in history, in the temporal sphere, God has placed the sword in the hand of the civil magistrate to carry out his wrath, to execute his wrath in a civil polity for his glory and for the well-being of that civil polity. So basically what you have is that the Apostle Paul underscores the abiding reality and applicability of the death penalty. So we've seen the context. Notice the duty to submit. Verse 1, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Christ speaking as wisdom in the book of Proverbs says, by me, Kings reign. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. We pray for kings and all who are in authority. Titus 3, 1 Peter chapter 2. We see this emphasis on souls being subject to the governing authorities. And then again, the, the reason or the reason for the command is found in first verse 1 B, the origin of civil government, and then two, the function of civil government in verses 3 and 4. So the origin, there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. The magistrate, now we need to make sure we understand something. When we went through COVID, this was a text that was used to try to bludgeon people that kept their churches open. Well, Romans 13, Romans 13 tells you you've got to be subject to the governing authority. Not when the governing authority is wrong. 
They're not God, brethren. They're under God and over men, but accountable to men. And when you've got a particular law in your land that everybody's supposed to navigate according to, and the higher-ups break that law, they're the problem. Not the persons that say, no, we're going to follow the law of the land. So this is not a bludgeon to, to bang over the heads of people that resist tyrants. Okay? When a government engages in tyranny, they have then tried to become as God. So the magistrate is subject to God and accountable to man. We mustn't ever forget that. These are not our lords. These are not our kings. These are not our elites in the sense that we must bow to them. And we pay their salaries. We have gone far astray in terms of our response to civil government in terms of the Christian world. Listen to 2 London uh, chapter 25, paragraph 1. God the Supreme Lord and King of all the world hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him, over the people, for his own glory, and what? The public good. It wasn't our good to be told we couldn't worship God on a Sunday. It wasn't our good when the government threatened to uh, close us down for that sort of a thing. It goes on to say, And to this end hath armed them with the power of the sword for defense and encouragement of them that do good and for the punishment of evildoers. Listen to John Gill with reference to a lawfully uh, uh, constituted and a lawfully abiding to that law uh, a magistrate. He says, this is not to be understood as if magistrates were above the laws. Why'd we forget this? Why in the last couple of years did we say, oh, they can do whatever it is they want? Sure. Brethren, that's never been true. You've got a history in the scripture of men disobeying civil government. Think about Moses in Egypt. Let my people go, Pharaoh. Did we forget that? Think about Elijah and Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 18, when old Ahab says, oh, there's the troubler of Israel. Elijah's, what, me, troubler of it? You're the one who co-opted Baal worship and brought it into Samaria. This is the, 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 the history of our people. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3, and I love that bit where they have confidence in God to vindicate and deliver them. And they say, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to renege. Even if he doesn't get us out of this fix, we're not going to renege because God commanded it. Daniel in the lion's den. The apostles, we must obey God rather than men. Well, again, when did we forget these very crucial things? If you think that governments cannot go astray, I don't know what to tell you. I, I don't know how to communicate. I mean, look at the Old Testament. Look at the kings of the northern kingdom. To a man, they were bad. The kings in the southern kingdom, not all of them were bad, but, but most of them were bad. Many of them co-opted, as I said, idolatry. They took their own children and threw them into the arms of Molech. And then the beast in, in Revelation chapter 13. Again, whatever your eschatological position, most people see the two beasts there. One's a religious authority and one is a political authority. What's the political authority doing? It's dominating. It is controlling. It is making sure you have the proper mark so that you can engage in commerce in that part of the world. 
Brethren, if you think that the government is only ever good, and I'm not, I'm not endorsing subversion. I'm not telling you, you know, go get a C4 vest and march downtown. Nah, see on the, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying we need to think biblically because if the last three years taught us anything, it may possibly have taught us there might be some more on the horizon. And if we're not thinking clearly, and if we're not thinking biblically, and if we don't have answers for the things that we engage in, we're going to be in big trouble. Back to Gil. This is not to be understood as if magistrates were above the laws and had a lawless power to do as they will without opposition. He's right, brethren. We, we shouldn't even have to make this an issue. We shouldn't even have to debate this. The churches to a church should have just stayed open. No, we're going to do what God commands and what actually our charter secures for us. He goes on to say, for they are under the law and liable to the penalty of it in case of disobedience as others. And when they make their own will a law or exercise a lawless tyrannical power in defiance of the laws of God and of the land to the endangering of the lives, liberties, and properties and, uh, of subjects, they may be resisted. Now, brethren, John Gill wasn't a Christian nationalist. He wasn't a theonomist. He wasn't a Reconstructionist. He was a basic Bible-believing Reformed theologian. This used to be commonplace, that this quote, this quote shouldn't go, wow, I can't believe somebody has the goal. This is common in our history, in our tradition. And again, we see it right there in the Bible. We must obey God rather than men when men tell us to do something that is contrary to God's word. It's really that simple. So the resistance is sin when the magistrate is functioning lawfully. If he doesn't command you to sin, and this is, you know, this is problematic for me. He doesn't command me to sin, but I still don't like it. But I'm not supposed to resist, okay? That the, 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 the resistance is sin when the magistrate is functioning lawfully. That's the point. The resistance is not sin when the magistrate is functioning unlawfully. And again, there was a time when everybody just recognized this. Well, you don't have the authority to command that. You don't have the right to command that. You don't have the ability to command that. Well, if they keep pushing, then you take whatever consequences are coming your way. This is called passive obedience. This was our particular mindset when we went through the COVID situation. Passive obedience is typically referred to the, the dying of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's active, is life of obedience. Passive obedience is death upon the cross. There's a doctrine of passive obedience where persons disobey the governing authorities fully prepared to deal with the consequences fully prepared to go to the gulag, fully prepared to pay the fines, fully prepared to do whatever is necessary to resist and to take their stand. That is, again, part of the history of our reform tradition, but what we find in the Bible. Daniel knew good and well that if he didn't bow to that image, if he went into his room, if he opened the windows, and he faced Jerusalem and prayed, he knew exactly what was going to happen. He was a bright guy. He was very wise. He could interpret dreams. The Spirit of Yahweh was upon him. Of course he knew. 
Same with the, the, anybody in the history of resistance knows the consequences. I just think people don't want to deal with the consequences. Obedience is better than anything else. Even the, the difficult consequences shouldn't argue us out of it. And then notice the function of civil government in verses 3 to 4. They are there to punish evil works. Verse 3, rulers are not a terror to good works. That's what they become when they close churches. That's what they become when they tell you you must do something contrary to the word of God. So again, whether Paul's speaking prescriptively the way it ought to be or descriptively the way that it is, the, the, the principle holds. Rulers are not a terror to good works. When you do good things, you shouldn't be molested by your civil government. You go to church, when you pray outside an abortion clinic, when you, you know, do those things that aren't criminal activities, they're good things, you shouldn't hear from your government. So rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil works. Now, people will say, and we'll deal with this probably next week, we'll deal with objections to the death penalty. But notice the, 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 the next statement there in verse 3. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Now, the praise there, I don't think it means they take you through the city streets and throw crowns on you. I think it means they leave you alone. <laughs> Wouldn't you feel praised by your government if they just left you alone? I, I sure would. If I didn't have every waking thought about government, I would feel praised by them. But the way it is, everything is, is political at this point. So do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. But then notice this, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. You'll hear the argument, the objection. Well, the death penalty doesn't deter anybody. Well, it deters at least one person, okay? Let's just be honest. You commit murder and we execute you, you're not going to commit murder again. There is a 100% success rate in the matter of deterrence. But guess what? If I'm thinking about going out and killing somebody, I may possibly be deterred as well. Right? Because I know that my government means business, and if I get caught, they're going to chop my head off just like my, my friend or my, my fellow. But, but God's word says it. If you do evil works, be afraid. That's the deterrent. You should be afraid. The penal sanctions in a given civil polity ought to be enough to keep people in check. You ought to be afraid to go in and steal from the store. You ought to be afraid to go and vandalize. You just seen the note I got on our door when I came to church this afternoon. It was horrible. People should be afraid of that. I texted Rick Horst. I shared it with him. He said, do you report it to the police? Why? They don't care, and they're not going to do it. And the only things I report now are actual vandalism or arson, because if the you know, morons burn the building down, I'm sure the, the insurance agents are going to say, well, did you report it to the police? There needs to be that deterrent effect. When people see there's no consequences for criminal activity, guess what? They're going to engage in criminal activity. So notice then, verse 4 summarizes the whole, for he is God's minister to you for good. If you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Now with reference to the sword, now that can mean that there's penalties and, and 
and uh, sanctions that are less than the death penalty, but we cannot negate what the sword stands for. John Murray in his commentary on Romans made the observation, the sword which the magistrate carries as the most significant part of his equipment is not merely the sign of his authority, but of his right to wield it in the infliction of that which a sword does. It can be wielded to execute punishment that falls short of death, but to exclude the right of the death penalty when the nature of the crime calls for such is totally contrary to that which the sword signifies and executes. Not an accident that Paul chose that language in terms of what the civil government wields for criminal sanctions upon evildoers. Well, God willing, we'll look at the objections next week. I'll close in prayer, and if there's any questions, we can deal with those. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you'd help us, not only in this room, but us as the church in Canada, us as the church throughout this world, to think your thoughts after you, certainly the gospel of our salvation, the blessedness of life in Jesus Christ, but also that good and holy law of God Almighty, to see its applicability in our own generation, in our own age, as well give us clear thinking when it comes to the role of civil government and just cause us as faithful Christians, faithful believers to be those who hold to scripture, every jot and tittle, and to bring glory and honor to you. And we ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Any questions or comments? Yes, sir. So uh, when is the most recent word on our court cases? I feel like it's been a couple months. Uh, we had a case, uh, meeting and basically we pled, we didn't plead out, we just agreed to a statement of facts. I think the tickets got dropped from 27 to 7 to 4. And of the four, one only will be 2300 for the host, part, host organizer, and then the other three will be 230 for just going to church. Marty's pretty confident he can get it all thrown out. He's going to plead. These are pastors. They're not billionaires. Give him a break. And then short of that, just out of curiosity, I know that there were various... Christians who said very unflattering things, the letters to the editor, for example, mm. which were quite disgusting. Yeah. Did, has anybody, first of all, publicly apologized for taking care of baby or repented? Excuse me, I almost choked here. Uh, no. no. No, no. Okay. No. And, and, and I recall that you were trying to challenge some people in the public debates. I take it that not a That didn't happen, no. ever tried to defend themselves publicly. No. Yeah. no so drive by shootings, huh? Yeah. Did you, yes, sir. I was just thinking with David, he killed uh, Uriah. He repented and God didn't, didn't kill him. That's right. Punishment. He did have other punishments. That's right. Kind of a precedent that if we repent from something, we can be let off the hook? No, no. That God is free to suspend the death penalty in instances like that, but that is not a precedent setter. I think that, you know, uh, I mean, one of the arguments against the death penalty is, well, then that that sinner can't be saved. That's Arminian and Pelagian. He can be saved. Usually in any state that I know of that has the death penalty, the, the last person that, that that criminal sees is his chaplain. It's a pastor. It's somebody pointing him to the Savior. Can that man repent and believe the gospel? Absolutely, positively he can. The thief on the cross probably wasn't just a thief who stole things from Walmart. He was an insurrectionist and a terrorist alongside of Barabbas. So there was forgiveness for him. 
Uh, I'm, I'm convinced if somebody is on death row and they repent and believe the gospel, they will not fight their sentence, they will not fight their, their sanction, they will not fight the punishment that is due for them. I mean the same thief on the cross. We're up here justly. We're up here because we were wrong. He's not. I'm thinking that in David's example, that's more of a crime of state, as it were, as opposed to something personal and deliberate. It's not like he was like a highwayman or a marauder, personally and individually, specifically killing him. Yeah, well, I mean, he should have been executed. But yeah, that's a tough one. When you're the king, you get, tend to get away with a lot. That's why our politicians all fancy themselves that way. But, but the Lord took life for life uh, from his child. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely that. And then there's, yeah, the sword never did depart from yeah, his Yeah, and he got, he got all the life stuff. But as far as, like, it's not typical, but, you know, it was life for life and the death of his firstborn. That's right. Yes, sir. Yeah, this, my wife and I were listening to this documentary. I can't remember exactly where she found it, but of this Canadian war vet uh, injured in, in service, um, paralyzed and stuff in a wheelchair, and the government's not getting like a wheelchair around to her house. Oh yeah, but they're like, that. they're like, we can get you made. It's nice. Yeah, and I know. I'm like, wow. She wants a wheelchair around, and we'll give you, we'll give you a shot. Yeah. So that we're going up and down the stairs. It's like with her wheelchair all by herself in yeah. the ice and cold. I don't know. I don't think it seems like they are pretty pretty easy to get them out. All right. Well.